Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 9th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week we start with a fable. Once upon a time, there were two programs designed for typesetting and layout on the desktop. Aldous PageMaker and Ventura Publisher. PageMaker spoke the language of Mac and PC, but Publisher spoke only the language of PC. Eventually, PageMaker was acquired by Adobe, makers of the mythical PostScript language, while Publisher was acquired by Xerox, who had nary a clue about typesetting, and then sold to an even more clueless Novell. Eventually, Publisher came to be owned by Corel, whose marketing team thought it was a lot like WordPerfect, or maybe it was something like Draw. Publisher languished. Meanwhile, Adobe acquired Frame and renamed it FrameMaker. In the desert, Quark had caught the attention of ad agencies with Express, but Adobe had a vision. That vision was called InDesign, and the first version did little more than set type, beautifully. It was followed by InDesign 2, Creative Suite, Creative Suite 2, and now Creative Suite 3. InDesign is where publishing is going. Okay, maybe a little less literary. In 2003, younger daughter Katie started as a freshman at Columbus College of Art and Design. Quark Express was the standard application for publishing in those days. It was something that she would begin learning in her sophomore year. But between that first year and the second year, Express disappeared and was replaced by InDesign. The same is true at a lot of publishing companies and advertising agencies around the world, even, I found somewhat to my surprise, at newspapers. InDesign has continued to evolve and improve from the first time I saw it until the current version, CS3. In mid-2004, I wrote a review of publishing and typesetting programs. And in that, I included a plea for the Adobe InDesign product manager, whose name I didn't know. I just put a note in the review, note to the Adobe InDesign product manager, that you've already beaten Quark. Now it's time to take a look at some of the features you could borrow from Ventura Publisher. I listed some of them and suggested that they think about the production-oriented features that could be added to InDesign. Well, not long after that, and to my great surprise, I received a call from Will Isley, who's the InDesign product manager, so now I know his name. He invited me to come out to Seattle, meet with the development team, and in that meeting, although what was covered is indeed covered by a non-disclosure agreement, convinced me, first of all, that Adobe wants InDesign to be the very best application it can be. And three years down the road, CS3 is available, and it clearly is the best there is right now. It's not the best InDesign there ever will be, because Adobe continues working on the product, but it's the best publishing application on the market right now, today. So I just gave away the ending. Well, previously, InDesign had minimal support for long documents, books, for example. CS3 adds features that long document creators will appreciate. It still falls a little short of what Ventura Publisher offered book publishers, but let's face it, Ventura is gone. 
in design is being guided by an intelligent, inquisitive, connected development team. Adobe is providing the resources needed for InDesign to continue a robust development schedule. Long document features that are in this new version include advanced bullets and numbering. There are text variables that allow you to make a single update that is then reflected through the entire document. There are improved master pages with long document features embedded. There's more support for footnotes. There is much better support for other languages. And there is the ability to merge information from a database file into an InDesign document. Catalog publishers take note. As with all the other CS3 applications, scripting has access to all aspects of the InDesign user interface. And that scripting can be done in AppleScript if you're on a Mac. It can be done in VBScript if you're on a Windows machine. Or if you need to make the script available across the platforms, JavaScript. There is so much new and improved that I had trouble figuring out where to start the review and what to leave out, because this review can't take the length of a novel. So I finally decided to concentrate on the interface, because it is the interface that unlocks the features of the program. If the interface is crowded or confusing or cumbersome, you're going to find it hard to use the program. You'll find it difficult to find the features. That's particularly important now because Adobe has been accused in the past, and rightly, I think, of creating crowded cumbersome interfaces that take up so much of the screen real estate that what you're working on is buried, and the only way to solve that problem is with a second monitor. No more. Okay, a second monitor is always helpful. Maybe someday I'll buy one. The price is certainly right these days. But the CS3 interface has been streamlined, cleaned up, trimmed down, and that second monitor is no longer necessary. What's more, CS3 offers a feature that I lobbied for when I met with the design team, workspaces that the user can define and save. Designing a single-page brochure is a lot different from putting together a 200-page book, and neither of these is anything like putting together a newspaper. CS3 lets the user optimize the workspace to fit the task at hand and then save that workspace for future projects. Now, I can't take credit for the addition of that feature. I have a feeling the design team probably had been working on that long before I made my presentation. But I am delighted to see that defined workspaces are present. InDesign ships with three or four workspaces already defined. One of them is called New and Improved in CS3, and this one's kind of neat. Select it, and every menu item that has a new or improved feature will be highlighted. So it's a lot like hovering a magnifying glass over the application so that you can find out what's new and what's better at a glance. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see examples of the standard menu and the what's new and better menu. That's www.techbiter.com. And I'll show you a full screenshot of the basic user interface. The development team had a mandate to make the interface better, and they have succeeded. They have been uncommonly careful about using screen real estate, even though multiple monitors are much more affordable now than they ever have been in the past. The properties bar at the top of the screen will change depending on what tool you have selected. If you have the text tool selected, you'll see one set of items that you can change. Typeface, type size, leading, things like that. If you have a frame tool selected, 
you'll see things like outline, space, position. On the left-hand side, the standard toolbar is pretty much as it has always been, a long single column. But if you want, you can very quickly and easily change it into a dual column format. The big change is over on the right-hand side of the screen where all those dialog boxes used to live. Well, they're still there, but now they take up a fairly narrow section, and they don't appear unless you click them. At that point, they fly out. All right, I have to say this. That is very Ventura-like. Now, if you happen to like the old approach of having dialog boxes stuck all over the screen, it's easy enough to make that happen. Just grab one and tear it off. Park it wherever you want on the screen, right on top of your document if you don't like looking at your document. The new interface is a gigantic improvement. No matter how much the developers have done, no matter how well they have done it, there's always more that they could do. Adobe isn't going to tell me what enhancements are under consideration for the next version of CS3, but you can be assured that there is a roadmap already prepared to guide the team from where Adobe InDesign is to where it will be a few years from now. Still absent from InDesign are a few features that my last century favorite Ventura publisher had way back in 1995, but that matters less and less because InDesign is built so well and is so reliable that I don't really spend a lot of time missing the absent features. The entire CS3 suite works very well together, surprisingly well, considering that some of the components have been a part of the Adobe family for such a short time. Dreamweaver, for example. So the big question is, is InDesign a publishing program or a layout program? And the answer is yes. It can be used for complex pages with multiple layers, It can also be used for newspapers, advertising flyers, magazines, books. If you're responsible for any of those kinds of tasks, and you're currently using some other application, it's way past time to take a look at InDesign. InDesign CS3, five cats, no question. It's the best there is right now. It's not the best InDesign there ever will be. Just wait till they get to CS4. This week, some questions and answers, starting with this one. How do I know if I have the storm worm? I talked about storm last week. I use a firewall, and I also have Norton antivirus. Is there something else I need to have or to do? Well, storm is an interesting puzzle. Because of the way the email component of storm works, it's almost impossible for antivirus applications to see it. The spams themselves don't contain any executable files or URLs. Spam filters already know about those tricks and catch them. Instead, what you get is an IP address that's supposed to provide access to a service that you signed up for, a picture, a video, or something else that you might want. IP addresses currently sail right past spam filters. And because the IP addresses routinely change to keep up with the compromised systems that they refer to, watching for a specific IP address isn't effective. Storm mutates quickly. There's also no central server. The infection spreads by a peer-to-peer pass-along system. Criminals running the enterprise send out new code to just a few compromised machines, and those machines spread the bad code to the other infected machines, so it's really hard to track that back to the source. Even the most up-to-date antivirus program won't see it because the binary file changes twice an hour. 
If you try to gain access to a storm-infected machine and the code notices that you're there, it can launch a distributed denial-of-service attack that can last for days. Nice, huh? If everybody who uses your computer avoids clicking on any link that isn't absolutely known positively to be reliable, then there's little chance the machine's been compromised. But all it takes is just a moment's inattention to click a link you think might be okay. But even if you do that, if you stop short of giving the rogue site permission to download and install anything, your machine is safe, at least the way Storm is configured now. That's another way of saying that this advice could easily be outdated next week. So practice not clicking. The combined set of infected machines is known as a botnet. The criminals who run it, and these are generally thought to be organized crime syndicates in Russia, send out those ubiquitous spams for pharmacies that sell fake drugs, the spams that promote pump and dump stock schemes, and spams for so-called OEM software. And if you buy any of that stuff, frequently it's going to come with its own infections built in. Bonus, no extra charge. So if you're concerned that the antivirus program you're using might have missed something, here's something you can do. Use one of the free scans offered by one of the other legitimate and well-known antivirus vendors. For example, I use Greasoft's AVG antivirus. F-Secure offers a free scan. So occasionally I use that. It never finds anything, but it's a good double check. Free scans obviously are a marketing tool for the antivirus vendor, but they do serve as a good double check for your preferred program. Now don't just go to Google and type free virus scan. You do that, you're going to end up with links to all kinds of unsavory locations, including some supposed antivirus vendors that actually install malware and viruses on your computer. Stick with the ones you know. McAfee, AVG, F-Secure, Norton, Avast, Kaspersky, PC Tools, those guys. And you'll be safe. Another question. I received a message from some sort of networking site called QChup. I've never heard of it. And the person whose name was on the invitation to join says that he never intended to send an invitation to me. What's up? Well, join the club. I received a couple of those this week, too, and in fact, one even made it to a listserv discussion list I'm involved with. QChup seems to be more of a spammer than a social network. I received an invitation from someone I know to join her network on the service. She has since confirmed that she specifically told QChup not to send a message to everyone in her address book, but it did so anyway. So my advice... Stay away from that one. Stupid Spam of the Week. Rocco J. Humphrey, Alphonse D. Shepard, Trudy J. Trotter, Steve V. Young, Ahmad Q. Sykes, Andrew M. Mosley, Adela P. Burnett, Marion D. McGee. What do they have in common? Well, it seems they were all victims of a substandard physical proportion of some element of their anatomy that caused others to whiz-giggle at them. But that's all in the past now because they have acquired and consumed a miracle substance for either three, four, six, or seven months, and all they want me to do is visit a website where I can obtain this same miracle substance. Each of them offers a different website address, but surprise, each of those addresses eventually leads to a site in 
Russia. You'll see the actual spams on the TechBiter Worldwide website. They're generated by a random text generator. This is the kind of thing any high school kid who's ever glanced at basic programming would know how to do. The trouble is that the original message was probably written in Russian and then translated rather badly into English. After that, the programmer used a thesaurus to find equivalent words that frequently turn out to be laughably non-equivalent. So a public toilet where all this whiz-giggling seems to be taking place becomes a not-private toilet, an unrestricted water closet, the urban toilet, the National Comfort Station, the Municipal John, the Free Toilet, the National WC, and the Open Bathroom. The people who do the whiz-giggling are variously described as girls, women's, ladies, females, boy toys, and princesses, and they are often joined by youths, chaps, gars, bucks, and blokes. And then there's that miracle substance our writer has consumed for either three, four, five, six, or seven months. It produces an appendage that is greatly preponderant than federal, truly preponderant than national, truly largest than national, very much weightier than average, terribly bigger than average, badly best than world, much bigger than national, and truly longer than average. The subject lines are usually intended to be read as if the message was written by a woman. Okay, that's a little odd. But the body of the message is always written from a man's perspective. The names applied to the messages can be men's names or women's names. That makes it a little confusing. This combination of slipshod programming, poor language skills, and a total lack of attention to detail make these spams so laughable that I have to wonder who would follow one of the links. And what about the time you have to take this miracle product? Is this selected randomly? Or is our spammer friend test marketing the claim? If he hooks you for seven months, he's going to get more money. But you got to take into consideration the need for instant gratification. Might seven months seem too long? Might the reader not want to sign up for something that takes less than seven months? Maybe he'd get more suckers to sign up if they think they'll see results in three months or four instead of six or seven. So maybe five is the ideal middle ground, about the right place to maximize return on investment. I mentioned the Russian mafia previously. Well, I checked the Whois record for several of the domains mentioned in those spams, and every one I checked, I didn't check all of them, but every one I checked, went back to the same location. All of the domains involved were registered to one Evgeny Speshilov, who claims to live in Omsk, that's a city in southwestern Siberia, about 1,200 miles east of Moscow. The website, however, is hosted in Hong Kong. By the way, closed circuit to Evgeny. Lose the word whiz-giggle. They ain't no such word in English. You know, you could look it up. In nerdly news, lots of news from Apple this week. But the one piece of news from Apple that got the most attention was not one they wanted to have the most attention. There was a lot of angst in Apple land this week. In announcing other new products, Steve Jobs announced a $200 price drop for the iPhone. Those who paid full price when the iPhone came out just mere weeks ago were none too happy about it. Nice way to reward your most loyal customers. The ones who stayed with you, the ones who stayed up late to be the first to have an iPhone... You drop the price for everybody else. Well, Apple belatedly announced, oh, by the way, we're going to take care of the people who bought an iPhone early. Quoting Steve Jobs, 
Every iPhone customer who purchased an iPhone from either Apple or AT&T and who is not receiving a rebate or other consideration, a $100 store credit towards the purchase of any product at an Apple retail store or the Apple online store. Now note, that's not $100 back. It's a $100 store credit. You can spend it only in an Apple store. And if this is like other Apple credits, you'll be able to spend it only on Apple brand products. And you won't be able to combine store credits if, for example, you bought two iPhones. Quoting Steve Jobs again from Apple's website, iPhone is a breakthrough product and we have the chance to go for it this holiday season. iPhone is so far ahead of the competition and now it will be affordable by even more customers. It benefits both Apple and every iPhone user to get as many new customers as possible in the iPhone tent. Me again. So if it's important to get as many customers as possible under the iPhone tent, why not give credit where it's due to the people who bought the iPhones the day they went on sale, to the people who voted with their dollars to support your vision of the iPhone? Apple makes great products, no question about it. Customer care sure could use a little polishing. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I don't own an iPhone. I don't particularly want one. My younger daughter does own a G4 dual processor desktop that crashes about six times a day. I have an iPod. She has an iPod. My wife is considering buying an iPod. I have a G4 PowerBook and an antique G3 notebook. I like the products, well, excepting maybe the G4 dual processor that crashes and has never really been right since day one. And I also think that Apple's OS X is probably the best operating system available, even if it doesn't have a start menu. But I sure wish Apple would give its customers a little more respect. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 9th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And you can send me an email from there if you'd like. Thanks. Bye-bye.